Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from John 12, verses 20 through 28, which is found on page 899 in your pew Bible. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I wonder, what are you most afraid of losing? What are you most afraid of losing? Maybe it's family. Uh, maybe it's a, a reputation, a career, financial stability, a relationship. Uh, it, it might even be, if we're honest, it might be an addiction that we're afraid of losing. Success, health, long life. What are you most afraid to lose? And, and what if Jesus asks you for that thing? Uh, what if he looked into your life and said, you know what, Bill? The thing that you are clinging on to so tightly, so afraid to lose, that's the thing I want more than anything else. I want you to give it to me. What would you do? What would you do if Jesus asked you for the thing that you are most afraid to lose? Or, or let me ask this another way. What are you afraid following Jesus might cost you? What are you afraid following Jesus might cost you? So let's say you're here this morning and you consider yourself, like, I, I, I consider myself a Christian, but, but deep down there's kind of this sense of, but, I, but I'm going to hold back a little bit because I'm not sure if I really committed to following Jesus that he won't ask me for something I, don't, I feel like I can, I can give him. Because if I were really to take him seriously, I might be in the place where he's going to ask me for for whatever it is, fill in the blank, and I just don't know if, if I could actually, I'm, I'm given that thing I'm afraid to lose. I just don't know if I can give it up. You know, I, I want to I so desperately be a generous person, but I'm, I'm just not sure I actually want to change my lifestyle. Or, you know, I, I really want to share about my faith with people in my workplace, but I'm not really sure if I actually want to let people know I'm a Christian because I'm afraid of what they might think of me, how they might perceive me, how they might lump me in with others who they consider to be mean or hateful or bigoted. I just, I don't know if I can do that. All right, I really want to honor Jesus with my sexuality and, and follow his plan and design in that area of life, but I'm afraid that if I, if I did that, if I held to that, that, that no one would actually date me. No one would actually continue in a relationship with me if I said, I'm going to actually follow this plan this way forward. What if Jesus asks me for that? 
Well, I've got some good news and some bad news then on that front this morning. The good news is this, that Jesus is very clear. You don't have to wonder. Jesus tells us right up front what he wants for us. He's very clear about the cost of following him. There's nothing here, hidden here. There's no fine print. That's the good news. Uh, the bad news, depending on your perspective, is, is this, that he wants it all. He wants everything. Your family, your reputation, your finances, your sexuality, your identity, your career, all that he wants it all. So again, the good news is you don't have to guess. Uh, the hard news is that the cost is, is, is your very life. He wants it all. But friends, you're never going to get a better offer than his. You're never going to get a better offer than his. And so as we start this new year, um, we are entering into this series in the Gospel of John, and we're picking it up in, in the middle. Now, you may be wondering, why are we starting this series in the middle of the Gospel of John? And that's actually because we started working our way through the Gospel of John last year, and then we took a break, and now we're coming back to it. So John is one of four sort of theological biographies that we have in the New Testament. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I call them theological biographies because they're not just recording kind of events that happened in Jesus' life, but they're, the authors, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are actually telling us, what does this mean for us? What does this mean about who Jesus is? How is he revealing God? So these theological biographies. And we're calling this series, Behold Your King, because in these chapters that we're going to walk through in, in the next coming months, we are seeing Jesus reveal who he is as our king. And he's our king, and as such, he already owns it all. Everything already belongs to him, and he plans to redeem it all. He wants it all. But he doesn't just want to save you. He wants to rule over you. He wants to be the king. Not just in a general sense, but in your life. And that might be hard to hear, but here's the thing. This king, he actually knows you better than you know yourself. He was the one who designed this life to be what it is. And he can actually give you the kind of guidance and wisdom to live this life to where you experience the most joy, the most satisfaction. And, and all that he asks for in return is that you would just give him everything in this world that you hold dear, that you would surrender it to him. So the question then, is he worth it? I mean, that, that's the question. Is he worth it? Is this king, this person who claims to be king, is he worth giving up that thing that you are most afraid to lose for? And that's the question we want to ask, yes, in this message, in this sermon this morning, but really throughout this series, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth what he demands when he demands everything of us? So last week we began in the series, actually we had a service here on New Year's Day, and Pastor Dakota walked us through um, the beginning part of John chapter 12, in which part of that is Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's what the day in kind of uh, the church life we, we call Palm Sunday, and we celebrate later on, but that's the story of Palm Sunday, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And that's a really important time marker because that marks the beginning of Jesus, really Jesus' final week on earth. It's what's leading up to his crucifixion later that week. And I want to just point out that, you know, we're in John chapter 12. So Jesus' whole life up to now has been covered in these first 11 chapters. Now in John chapter 12, the rest of this is 21 chapters. The rest half of this book covers one week in Jesus' life, essentially. I mean, that should tell us something about the significance of these chapters, of this week, of this moment. 
that John slows down to take 10 chapters to tell us about this one week in Jesus' life. That's going to take us like three months to go through this one week, so I'm just, get ready. And he continues in John chapter 12 by giving us this account um, of this interaction between a group of people that he only identifies, John only identifies as the Greeks, and then Philip and Andrew. So take a look at this. This is verse 20. You see this in John chapter 12. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast, so this is the feast of Passover, where Jesus, you may know, Jesus' life kind of ends and uh, his crucifixion is at the end of the week of Passover. So the feast of Passover were some Greeks. And some people, and some of these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, as I was studying this passage this week, it's like, why, why this kind of chain? Why do the, these, whoever these people are, these Greeks, why do they go to Philip first? And then why does Philip go to Andrew? And then why do Andrew and Philip then go to Jesus? Why is this like kind of chain? And I mean, I did some reading on this. Like, I don't know. I don't, people don't really know why. Why does this, but even more than like, why did it happen this way? Why did John bother to tell us about it? Like, why did he feel like, I got all this to tell. I'm going to write down these words here and record this. So again, I, I don't have a definitive answer here, but a, a couple things. One, I think one, it just bears witness to the eyewitness nature of the Gospels. And this is not a detail that if you were just crafting a story out of thin air that you would make up. I think John writes this down because that's what happened. He was, he was recalling an event that happened. You watched the Greeks go to Philip and then Philip talked to Andrew. I don't know why, but this is what John saw. It's what he wrote down. And two... I think it's significant here that even in this moment where John is going to make it really clear that the Jewish leaders in particular are rejecting Jesus and they're going to be instrumental in having him put to death by the Roman Empire, even as Jesus' own people are rejecting him, we're going to spend a lot more time on that next week, the nations, non-Jewish people, the Greeks, are flocking to Jesus. That Jesus isn't just a Messiah for his own ethnic Jewish people, though he came that, but he is the Messiah, the Savior, the Rescuer for all people, for the whole world. Then Jesus continues on in verse 23. So then Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So the Son of Man is a way that Jesus talks about himself from a prophecy in the book of Daniel. And this hour is the hour of his death. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground for the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It bears much fruit. So think about this metaphor for a moment. Like if you have a, a seed, I mean, this seed looks pretty dead. Like this kind of lifeless thing. And you put it into the ground and bury it, and in so doing, it sprouts life and can produce hundreds of new seeds out of this. Now, we as a family did an, an unintentional experiment with this very thing, because last uh, Halloween, last October, October of 2021, our, our kids played with these pumpkins that we had for decorations, and they broke them open, they played with the seeds, and they left them in our front yard, and then, you know, come spring of 2022, 
we had pumpkin plants sprouting in our yard. I've actually got a picture of this is a pumpkin we grew in our front yard um, this year. And then you can see a little bit of those are the vines behind the kids that grew. These huge pumpkin vines grew in our front yard. We said, sure, kids, we'll let them grow. And we, we probably had 10 pumpkins. But the, when you looked at that mess of broken pumpkin and seeds just kind of rotting in our front yard, you never would have thought this is going to bring up all this new life. But it's exactly what happens. And Jesus is saying this is what his death will do, and he invites us to join him, to bear fruit with him. This is verse 25, and this is the key verse in his whole text. Verse 25, whoever loves his life, Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is one of those, like, this is a pretty harsh statement from Jesus. Whoever loves his life is going to lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. But again, Jesus is being honest about the cost of following him. And notice this, no matter what, there is going to be loss. With or without Jesus, we will experience loss. That's the first thing we need to keep in mind here. You will lose with or without Jesus. With or without Jesus, we will experience loss. And the reality is, is that you and I are already giving our lives to something or someone that will demand everything from us. We maybe just not understand that or realize that consciously, but we are. We are giving our lives to something, a career, a hobby, an identity, a relationship that will, over time, demand everything from us. That even now is causing us to say no to some things so we can continue to say yes to it. So it's not a matter of if we are going to give our lives to something. But, but what are we giving our lives to? And with or without Jesus, there is a cost. But the great lie in our culture, and really in all of human history, is that you can have it all without losing anything. You can have it all without losing anything. Now Jesus says here, if you love your life, meaning that if you live for yourself, if you are your own God, the focal point of your own existence, that you will lose in an ultimate profound sense. But that if you live for something bigger than yourself, that it's also a loss because you have to say no to yourself. You have to deny yourself. You have to say, I'm, I'm not the center of everything. That's a cost as well. But if you do that, do you actually find your way to life? Now when Jesus says here, that we have to hate our lives. He doesn't mean that we live a life of self-loathing or that we have to hate ourselves in order to follow him. That's not what he's saying. This language, this contrast of, of loving life and hating life, this love-hate language that Jesus uses in this text is a kind of a Semitic cultural way of talking about where does your fundamental preference lie? As one commentator put it, do you have a fundamental preference for yourself or do you have a fundamental preference for Jesus? If you have a fundamental preference for yourself, you will lose your life. That's what Jesus is saying. If you remain with a fundamental preference for yourself, you will lose your life. But if you have a fundamental preference for Jesus, you will gain your life. But either path is going to feel like a loss. With or without Jesus, there is a cost. The difference is, is that Jesus is honest about the cost. Jesus is honest about the cost. While idols, these kind of good things that we turn into ultimate things, they will always lie to you about the cost. 
they'll always lie to you about the cost. Um, when I was on uh, sabbatical last summer, Rachel and I had the chance to go uh, to an all-inclusive resort in Mexico and spend a week on the beach. It was a wonderful time. It was an amazing trip. We had a great time there. But if you've ever been to one of these places, an all-inclusive resort, you know that they're, it's not technically all-inclusive. It's really like mostly inclusive, right? Because there's always more stuff that you can buy and, and spend money. It's not all included. So if like, you know, if you want a massage, that's definitely going to be extra. If you want anything other than like the basic like house red or white wine at dinner, that's, that's going to be an upcharge. So it's mostly inclusive, right? But we thought we found a way that we could have a free massage at the resort. Our, our wonderful concierge, Carlos, God bless him, said, you know, if, if yeah, we get you a massage, um, just, you know, why don't you come and uh, we'll, we'll take you on a golf cart, we'll drive you around the resort for, you know, take no more than 45 minutes, and we just would love to share some information with you. He kept saying that, share some information with you about, about the resort, about the place, and, and then yeah, we'll, we'll get you that couple's massage on the beach, and we'll get you the credit for that on your account, no, no problem. I'm like, okay, well, let's do this. So we show up at the, the office and check in, and we're waiting for that golf cart, but they take us upstairs to this kind of dark cubicle, and we're there for an hour. No golf cart in sight. The most high-pressure sales I've ever been, oh, this woman trying to convince us to buy a timeshare that I think she said eight different times was not a timeshare, but I was like, this seems like a timeshare. And we would have been there, I don't know how long we would have been there, until Rachel finally just like interrupted her and said, you know, we, they said it was 45 minutes, and this has been over an hour, like we've got to get back to our vacation, like we, we can't stay here anymore. Right? It's like, it was ridiculous. It was anything but free. We paid for that massage with like an hour of misery, and then guilt afterwards, that we didn't do what this woman wanted us to do. That's what idols do, though. They always lie about the other. They always say you can have something for nothing. Something for nothing. Again, as, as Tim Keller likes to say, idols are simply good things that we turn into ultimate things. Good things that we turn into ultimate things. And the moment that we take a good thing and it becomes an ultimate thing, it is going to start lying to your face all day long, saying you can have everything and it will cost you nothing. Yeah, you can look at pornography and still have a healthy marriage. Yeah, you can idolize your kids and not drive them away from you. You can live for your career, still have a healthy home life. And not only do idols lie to us, they also enslave us, and actually they set us up to be enslaved by others. And this is a, a fresh insight for me this week. I was reading an article, an essay by uh, Howard Thurman, who is, uh, he was a a theologian, philosopher, um, actually had a profound impact on Martin Luther King Jr., and he writes in this essay that he explains that if you have anything, if you have something, anything that you are afraid of losing, that anyone can control you with that thing. So if you have something that you are afraid to lose, if you have a relationship, if you have a career, you have something, anyone that you are afraid to lose, that, that anyone can control you with that thing. So think about that. If you live for your career, if your identity is all about your work, then your boss owns you. I mean, whether they know it or not, but they can control your life. Because if they were to fire you or to give you a poor performance review, that you would be devastated. And so when they say jump, you ask how high. If they say come in on your day off, you come in. If you're afraid of losing your career, you give your boss an incredible amount of power over you. 
If you're afraid of losing the affection of your children, them liking you, caring for you, and being happy with you, then you are actually at their every whim, and you will track with every upper, up, up and down emotional state, and they can, even without them knowing it, they can manipulate you and control you. And, and right, like, I think we, we maybe haven't thought about it in that way before, but we also kind of know this, like, in every spy novel or thriller kind of movie, right, when the CIA or the KGB, one of those agents wants to turn someone and flip them to become a double agent, like, what do they, they do? They always find the thing that, they, that they're afraid someone will find out, or they go after their, their kid or their spouse or whatever, the, find the thing they love the most, and they threaten it, right? And that's how they gain power over them. This is, this is Howard Thurman's point. Holding on to your life in his ultimate sense, is the door to enslavement, where you can always be controlled, enslaved, tyrannized, and mastered, he says. Are you beginning to see what I mean? That there's always a cost, with or without Jesus. Idols will always lie to you about that cost, but Jesus tells you the truth. And here's how Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who actually lived about the same time as Howard Thurman, Howard was here in the United States, Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived in Germany during World War II, and he explains it in one of his most iconic quotes from his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Listen to Bonhoeffer's words. Someone who was murdered by the Nazis. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross, listen to this, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The question is not whether or not there is a cost. The question is, is the cost worth it? And the main point that Jesus wants us to hear is our second main point this morning, and that is that Jesus is worth everything you are afraid of losing. Jesus is worth everything you're afraid of losing. That little phrase is actually printed on the, the calendars that we hand out for our student ministries programming uh, this, this fall. It's down there in the bottom on the little letterboard. It says, Jesus is worth everything you're afraid of losing. And it captures perfectly the heart of this passage. Because going back to where we started this morning, we often think about the cost of following Jesus. What are we afraid that following him might cost us? What are we afraid we might lose? We might have to give up in order to follow Jesus. And that's the point that Bonhoeffer drives home in his quote on the cost of discipleship. There's a cost. He bids us come and die. But you know, Dallas Willard, who was a philosopher and theologian, passed away a number of years ago encourages us to think about the cost of non-discipleship. Have you ever thought about this? There's a cost to not following Jesus. There's a cost to not living a life with him. Here's how Willard talks about this. He says, non-discipleship costs us abiding peace, a life penetrated through by love, faith that sees everything in light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do it right. In short, non-discipleship costs you exactly the abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. There's a cost to non-discipleship. There's a cost to not following Jesus. There's a cost to not dying yourself. And Lewis, and, and, and uh, Willard says here that it is exactly 
the abundance of life that Jesus came to offer. So, so let me show you how that works with an example. Um, I have a money problem. And my money problem is this. I, I love the idea of being generous. But I also really love having a savings account balance that is as high as it can possibly be. A few years ago, I opened one of those online high-yield savings accounts, and it's just a place to, to keep money for you know, emergencies and those kind of things. I love the idea of like, oh, if something breaks in the house, a car breaks down, someone has to go to the emergency room, and there's a bill or a copay and all that stuff that like, we've got it all covered, it's there, no problem. But the reality is, can you sustain both of those things? And, and moreover, what happens when inflation happens? And now even the money that's in that account, maybe it's earning a little bit more, but it's still, it's not keeping pace, right? It's, it's not worth as much as it used to be. It can't go as far. And the repairs get more expensive. The things to replace get more expensive. The car to replace the one that's breaking is more expensive. What do you do then? What if money actually can't deliver? What if it actually can't provide? The rest. It's like I can cling on to that, but it costs me the rest. I have more money in the savings account, but less rest. No matter what, there's a cost. And which God can truly protect you, can truly provide for you, can truly care for my family? Is it the, the one who lives in heaven, who made everything, who owns everything. Can that God protect me? Or can the God who lives on a computer chip somewhere in a commerce bank server protect and provide for me? Either way, there's a cost. But you can trust Jesus that the cost is worth it to follow him. Why? Because what he offers comes at a cost to himself. The life that Jesus offers to you comes at an incredibly high cost to him. Look at verse 27. When Jesus speaks about his death, his hour, look at what he says. This is verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. Jesus is worried. He is upset about what he's about to face. My soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Save me from the cross. Save me from this death. Save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus' whole life has been leading up to this moment. It is why he came. Because Jesus did not save himself from this hour, from his death, we can follow him into death that leads to life. In fact, his death is the very thing that is going to draw people to himself. If you find yourself drawn to Jesus, it is because he gave his life for you. This is what he says in verse 32. And when I am lifted up from the earth, that is meaning his, his crucifixion on the cross, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus says him being lifted on the cross, his crucifixion, his gruesome death, is going to be the very thing that draws people to him. His love expressed for you on the cross through his death is the thing that will draw him to you. He says he's going to draw all people to himself. And when he says all people there, he doesn't mean all people without exception. Because clearly, 
There are lots of people who are rejecting him then and will continue to reject him. What he means is he's going to draw all kinds of people to himself without distinction, as one commentator says. Not, not all people without exception, but all people without distinction. Greeks are going to come to him. Jews are going to come to him. Young people, old people, rich people, poor people, people on the outside, people on the inside, people in power, people with no power, slaves, women, men, children, all kinds of people without any distinction are going to be drawn to Jesus by his death. But you have to choose. Because as Jesus says in one of his parables, you cannot serve two masters. And Jesus, though he's worth everything you're afraid of losing, because he came to give his life for you, you can give your life up for him. It won't be easy. In fact, it will probably be the hardest thing that you ever do, especially at the beginning to make that moment of surrender. But it will set you free. C.S. Lewis, in his short novel, The Great Divorce, depicts this about as powerfully as I've ever seen it. The novel is it's kind of set as a dream about these, these ghosts who live in this place called the Grey Town. It, it's a place uh, that's separated from God, where people are further and further moving apart from one another. It's a place of isolation, place of loneliness, but it's a place where each person kind of rules supreme in their own life. And as the story goes on, these people who live in the gray town get the opportunity to go to the high country, just kind of this picture of heaven. They get to go to the outskirts of the high country and experience what it's like there. And actually, each one of them kind of gets an opportunity where they can stay if they want to. But slowly, just about every single one of them really kind of comes to the conclusion that they'd rather have their kind of their own way in the gray town than, than kind of give up their life, their preference to stay in the high country. But then we come to a ghost who has a little red lizard on its shoulder. And I just want to read you a little bit of the story. So just let your imagination, just listen, you're just going to get this little story time. Just read here. I'm going to read this to you. It says, The lizard was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. And as we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. And then he turned and started to limp westward, away from the mountains, away from the high country. Off so soon, said a voice. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap, here he indicated the lizard that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course his stuff won't do here, I realize that, but he won't stop. I, I shall just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet? Said the flaming spirit, an angel I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Ah, but look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Do you want him killed? Well, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with something so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There's no time. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest need for that. I, I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Well, it would be silly to do it now. Uh, some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. 
And the angel's hands were closed on the lizard, but not quite. The lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud, even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. If you, he can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. And you will be without me forever, and it's not natural. How could you live without me? You will die without me. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me, said the ghost. It won't, but supposing it did. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature than may I. Damn and blast you. Go on. Can't you get it over? Do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended with a whimpering, God help me. God help me. And next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I have never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it, and while it bit and writhed, he flung it broken back on the turf. And in that moment, the man was transformed from a ghost into a solid, gloriously transformed, renewed human being. And the lizard that dies, lays writhing on the ground for a moment, and then it too begins to change, to transform, and is turned into a beautiful horse. And the man and the horse ride together into the high country to meet the master who has set them free from enslavement and death. Which brings us to our final point this morning, and it's brief. It's really brief. Just start losing today. As the angel said to the ghost of the lizard, there is no time, there is no other day. All days are present. All days are now. Friends, stop making yourself the fundamental preference of your life and start making Jesus the fundamental preference. And there's an urgency to Jesus' call in this passage. If you look down to verse 35, you see it, where Jesus says, the light is among you for what? A little while longer. Time is short. The light is among you for a little while longer. It's not going to be here forever. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. But how? How do we start losing? Just kind of three things to think about here. First, identify. Like, really work on this question that we began with. What are you afraid of losing? What are you afraid that following Jesus will cost you? Be honest about that with yourself. What am I afraid that this following Jesus life will cost me? And then ask Jesus, and maybe you've never even really talked to Jesus before, but maybe just try this. Ask Jesus. Jesus, would you show me that you're worth it? That you're worth everything I'm afraid of losing? And then third, ask him to kill that thing which is going to kill you if you won't let it go whatever that lizard is in your life that says, you can't live without me. It would be unnatural. Let him kill it so that it can be brought to new life. Maybe killing it is simply something like saying, I, I, there is unforgiveness that is rotting my soul. And you say, well, I, there's a class that's about, un, about forgiveness and how to practice it, and that's happening this year. Maybe, maybe killing it begins to say, I'm, I'm going to sign up for that class. I'm not promising I'm going to forgive by the end of it, but I'm going to sign up for this class, and I'm going to start learning about what does forgiveness look like. Or, or maybe you find yourself trapped in shame. And it's just these parts of your life that you feel like you can't reveal. And So maybe, maybe you jump in 
uh, to the men's study of Kurt Thompson's amazing book, The Soul of Shame, that's launching this, this winter. And maybe you just sense that there's more for you in your relationship with Jesus, that he is calling you to follow him closely, to take him more seriously. And so maybe you jump into one of the women's studies of Dane Oldham's book, Deeper, which is about following Jesus in all life and, and gaining a deeper relationship. I, I don't know. These are just ideas of how could you take a next step, a concrete action in the world to say, I'm going to kind of vote with my feet to follow Jesus more closely. Or maybe it's simply just jumping in with a form life, which is kind of a companion to uh, daily discipleship around these sermons. And this is all about the discipline of servanthood. That's what we're looking at in this series, about how do we notice other people? How do we notice them and serve them and care for them and put Jesus first in all of life? Maybe it's simply, I'm just going to pick up one of these books. I'm going to look at it. I'm going to consider it. Again, I don't know what that next step is for you. But I can tell you this, that Jesus is worth everything you're afraid to lose. He is worth everything you are afraid to lose. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together after we pray. But when we celebrate communion, the elements of communion tell the story. Grain that was crushed to make crackers, fruit that was crushed to make juice, death that is providing life. This is the story of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there are so many times when the story of my life reveals that I don't actually believe that you are worth everything I'm afraid of losing. So I pray that for each and every one of us that you would help us to know what it is we're afraid of losing and that you would show us how Jesus is better and give us the courage to take next steps in faith to trust you and to obey you wherever we're at this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name by the power of his spirit.